Hi, I'm Nam Kiwanuka. Join us and be part of the conversation on The Thread, streaming on TVO.org, The Thread with Nam on YouTube and other TVO platforms, and be sure to follow us on Instagram at TVO The Thread. For more in-depth perspectives and interesting stories, sign up for our daily newsletter at TVO.org daily. Earlier this week, Ontario health officials projected the province could see as many as 1,000 new COVID-19 cases per day in the first half of October. That's far more than during the strictest lockdown in spring. And surely what we all hoped wouldn't happen. What can and should we do to reverse the tide? Let's ask epidemiologist Rewa Dionandan. He is an associate professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa. And he joins us now from the nation's capital. Hi, Rewat. How are you? Hello, how are you? I'm great. How are you? So, you know, TVO is celebrating 50 years and you actually have a connection with TVO. What is that connection? Uh, My very first job was at TVO when I was 16 years old and I was fired because I have an anti-authoritarian bent to me. And I fully understand why I was fired, but I I remember it so well. It was a great place to work and I love TVO. That's awesome. My mouth just kind of dropped and you said I was fired because people are like, well, I decided to take a different path. You know, it was (laughs) me, not them. But, um, you know, this week there's been so much uh, uh, frustration and confusion around what's happening with the COVID-19 cases. But before we start talking about uh, the numbers going up, I was listening to your podcast and you actually said you don't like the terminology like when we talk about the second wave. Why is that? Well, the word wave gives a false impression of the nature of the disease. So there's nothing intrinsic about the virus that it must behave in a wave-like fashion. Uh, This is entirely due to human interaction. So respiratory infectious diseases like this, they are spread by human contact. And the more human contact there is, the more the cases go up. The less human contact, the less, the fewer cases there are. So the, the waves, as it were, occur in that fashion. The other reason is that when people hear wave, they assume that we can just ride out the current wave sit tight and it'll go away. No, we got to do something to drive the numbers down. So again, it's based on human behavior. I prefer to use the word surges. So we're in a resurgence of the disease in response to our actions. I mean, in March, when we when this whole thing happened, I did hear about, you know, what happened in 19, uh, the 1918 flu, how there was a second surge. I'm going to use your language. Um, so is this something that was expected or is something else happening? Well, the current resurgence was definitely expected because when we opened up the economy again, we expected more human interaction. What wasn't fully expected was the extent and rapidity of it. So originally, a lot of us were talking about the hammer and the dance. We hammer down the cases with a hard lockdown, right? So we remove human interaction, caseload goes down. And as we slowly open up the economy with new public health measures in place, like masks and distancing and limits on gatherings, then we can dance as the cases go up and down. But as Isaac Bogosh said on media recently, uh, you can only dance if you know the steps. And somehow we've lost a step and now we are surging rather than dancing. So yeah, it's, it was expected, but again, it's the rapidity and the uh, the scale of the return that's a bit surprising to me. Um, so why is it surprising to you? Because you said uh, the steps, we're missing the steps. Why is it surprising to you? I kind of thought we had a, a handle on this. I kind of thought we understood what had to be done. And I'm I don't want to blame people, but I'm blaming people, right? This is entirely predicated on human behavior and people are going to house parties, they're gathering in large numbers, they're not wearing their masks when they should, they're not distancing appropriately. And we have anti-mask demonstrations, that's not helping, things like that. So the assumption was that the 
public would be on board with these measures and that would help drive them down. And also, this is a calibration process. We're not entirely sure which measures will affect what degree of effect. So we've got to figure this out as we go and enact more measures to get the numbers down again so that we can dance accordingly until the vaccine arrives. Um, I want to push back a little bit because um, I think being, I think there are people who've done everything that they're supposed to do, but then you see casinos opening up before schools. Um, you certain things, certain venues are open and maybe people have like a, a, a false sense of security. So do you think that maybe the messaging behind the severity of this from the government is partially to blame? Oh, yeah. The messaging has been atrocious, you know, from many angles uh, about what to do, when to do it, who's got to do it, what the priorities are and what the risks are. So I'm fond of saying this is not necessarily an individual risk of disease. This is a population risk issue. So we have this narrative that um, why should I be afraid of a disease that is 99.5% survivable? Well, we as individuals probably will do quite well. If we get this disease, we'll probably recover and have a couple of weeks of misery and we'll be fine. But 0.5 or so percent of the population will not. And when this is scaled up to very large numbers, that means a lot of suffering, a lot of death, and more importantly, actually, a lot of hospital usage that impacts other livestock considerations like elective surgeries and so forth. So that that nuance of messaging has been lost, and the extent to which individuals are responsible for each other has been lost. So uh, the actions that I take today, yeah, they impact me and my family, but they also impact the older couple living two blocks away. So something that I do, it's, it's a butterfly effect writ large. So something that I do, maybe I choose to go to a party or something, then uh, someone infects me and I infect somebody else and they affect the postman or something, that may cause a death somewhere down the road. So the the chains of transmission, the extent to which we are each responsible for each other, that's kind of been lost. No one anticipated when this pandemic started that we'd have to invest so much on messaging and communication, not just in getting you know the risk message out there, but also in combating misinformation and active disinformation coming from you know certain political quarters. So we're rewriting the public health communication textbook in real time here. Do you think also, because we hear so many different terminology, um, we hear uh, rapid tests, we hear this. Do you think that people are not understanding what the what the situation is because maybe the language is not layman's? It's a really good point. Yeah, I think that's the case. No, and whose job is it to deploy that language accordingly? Public health's job, it's government's job, it's educators like me, it's you know uh, media people like yourself. We all have a role to play in this. At the same time, the whole world is getting a crash course in the fundamentals of epidemiology, you know, which is great from my perspective. So how do we combat this? I don't know, but it is indicative of a failure to invest in science education for many decades now. So that is fueling the ability of misinformation campaigns to find purchase in our landscape. So um, this disease has really revealed many cracks in our society, the inequalities, the the, the boorishness, a lot of the um, uh, selfishness as well, but also the extent to which we have failed to inoculate our public with appropriate science education and critical thinking. Well, you know, we've been hearing about flu season coming up and how COVID-19 will probably get worse, as we're seeing with the numbers, when the weather changes. Why does the virus uh, have, uh, behave differently inside than outside and in cold weather versus hot weather? 
it doesn't really behave differently. It's the same virus for the most part. It's humans behave differently. Now, let me couch that a bit. Maybe humidity has a role to play. For example, in more humid environments, maybe the droplets that we exhale are a bit heavier and they will fall to the ground in a shorter distance and that diminishes population transmission of a, a scaled up population level. Maybe, you know, it's probably a small effect. What's probably happening is when the weather gets cold, people go inside. One thing we do know about this disease is that it loves to spread amongst groups of people huddled inside. Churches, bars, concerts, homes. Right? Schools? So that's schools. <laughs> yeah. So that's why we need to focus on the measures to protect people who are indoors and also to discourage people from gathering indoors if they don't need to. Uh, Ray Watt, I want to show you a graph that was released earlier this week. Um, Sheldon, if you could please put it up. Uh, the Ontario government released new modeling on Wednesday. Part of it was this graph depicting potential low, medium, and high ICU hospitalizations as compared with jurisdictions that have seen each scenario. Ontario looks okay right now, uh, but what do you think might happen, Ray Watt? What are we looking at? Okay, so this is important. This is the story here, is we're trying to avoid uh, an overcapacity of our hospitals and ICU beds. Uh, so if that happens, then that affects everything. It means that you can't get your elective sur surgeries, you can't get regular medical care. And by the way, when I say elective surgeries, I don't mean cosmetic nose jobs. I mean people who need like knee replacements to go back to work. So elective surgeries aren't really elective. So what we're seeing is possible outcomes. Um, we've looked at Australia as a bad scenario, and Australia, because they're in the Southern Hemisphere, they went through their second wave uh, or second surge before us. We're looking at Michigan, which is a medium scenario, and if things go the way they did in the first wave in Ontario, that's the low-risk scenario, with the overlay of the current trend of demographics that we're currently experiencing. What does that mean? Right now, the growth in cases is mostly in young people. Young people general, do not get hospitalized as much, do not use the ICU capacity as much, and do not die as much, which is great. If it stays in that demographic, then we're golden. But it might not stay in that demographic. And if it doesn't, then the hospitalization usage goes up, and then we're scratching the capacity of Ontario hospitals to give service. And that would be quite tragic. So will it bleed over into the other age demographics? I think so. We're seeing it already. Right. So because we do not live in a segregated society, young people live with old people. Teenagers live with their parents. Um, your barista gives coffee to middle aged people. I'm a middle aged man. I see my students regularly. So it's I think is a mistake to assume that we are hermetically sealed in our various demographics and that this will not get worse in the short run, because I think it will. You mentioned the butterfly effect before what you're saying makes me feel, well, it sounds as if this can't be contained. Can it be contained, the numbers? Yeah, it can be contained. I think so. Um, we've seen other parts of the world. New Zealand is the great case. They've actually mostly eliminated their virus. I think they're at four days now with no new cases. Now, they have some advantages. They lower population density. They're an island. They have great compliance with public health messaging, et cetera. So not every situation will be perfectly comparable. But there are things we can do to limit transmission to a very large extent. You know, and we, we kind of know what those things are. Do you think that the government should be returning to stage two or continue to have targeted shutdowns? 
So this is, uh, it's important not to have expertise creep here. I'm not an economist. I can't make projections about what's appropriate for the economy of Ontario. The same way I don't like when, you know, physicians shouldn't do economic forecasting and economists shouldn't do epidemiological forecasting. But there are things epidemiologically we know about this disease that we can use as levers for control through an economic lens. For example, we know that it spreads indoors in group settings. So if we remove the unnecessary indoor settings from the table, like bars, like nightclubs, like casinos, um, then we have a good chance of, of containing it further. Right? Uh, and we know that certain things like distancing and mask wearing work to a large extent, and that the data is unclear, but they, it does seem to work, that we can deploy those things with uh, greater efficacy. So I think focusing on the things we know that work is important. The second half of that argument, though, is that we also know about exponential growth. Okay. And that tells us that by the time we're in the thick of it, it's too late to act. So proactive action is needed. When you see the caseloads start to rise in the hospitals, you're probably going to see some more suffering before any, uh, any actions you enact now uh, bear fruition. So acting before you see the suffering is important. So to answer your question directly, um, I don't know. But if I were to hazard a guess or an opinion, I would favor targeted lockdowns, a more strategic approach, um, because A, I don't think the public will tolerate another hard lockdown, and B, we know better about the disease now than we did back in March. Back then, we used the hammer. We can use the scalpel now. And the scalpel tells us, just take out those opportunities for large indoor spread and minimize you know, uh, group gatherings. Uh, and focus on those geographies that are particularly problematic and reassess in real time as the data tells us. So I think we can avoid the hardship by being proactive and being, you know, a definitive, having a, a, a firm hand on the leadership right now um, about where to direct our resources. So if we, if we were to take this proactive um, uh, approach instead of a reactive approach, you've mentioned cases rising in young people and young people, the numbers are climbing. I think part of the confusion around this is that a lot of young people do jobs where they're frontline, where they're in contact with a lot of people. And yet you keep hearing that young people are partying or, you know, so we have to find a way to be able to communicate to that group without putting them on the defensive. So what role, whose role would that be to not make these assumptions around certain groups that could be causing the numbers to climb? Everybody's role. My role as an educator, your role as a person in the media, definitely government's role and the scientist's role in getting the data out there. I'm very sensitive to this. I don't want to blame a demographics. I know many of my students, for example, are very responsible people. But as you mentioned, they live in group housing. They can't distance themselves. They're frontline workers. They haven't got the resources to protect themselves. So it's incumbent upon the state to give them the resources, to give them sick days, for example, to stay out of uh, the workplace if they're symptomatic, to be able to test them rapidly to or to determine if they're infectious or not. The messaging aspect of it is nuanced, right? Blame does not work. I'm fond of talking about the carrot and the stick for messaging. It comes out of advertising. The stick is the scolding. You're bad. Don't go to parties. You know, the stick is also the law. We will give you a bylaw citation if you have a house party. And the stick works to a large extent, but the, the carrot has not been explored fully. What's the carrot here? The carrot, I think, is the narrative of heroism. It's heroic to not go to that party because you want to keep your fellow citizen alive. You know, um, it's also, uh, there's an incentive around what I call the society level marshmallow test. 
if you remember the marshmallow test from first year psychology, that's when they give a, a kid a marshmallow and say, if you can wait one hour, I'll give you two marshmallows. Mm-hmm. So it's a test of delayed gratification. So we're asking people, delay your gratification. You know, uh, issue your socialization for a few more months. And if you do that, the reward, the two marshmallows, will be a more open economy that allows us to thrive and to socialize more. So that, again, that nuance of messaging has not been appropriately conveyed. And I don't want to blame anyone for failure of that level because who's got the time or resources? The public health budget is directed towards managing cases and contact tracing and testing. And uh, they have like one or two people to manage a social media feed. They, they haven't employed any marketing firms to get the messaging across more in a more you know, strategic manner. But we might have to do that. No one anticipated that we would have these issues in 2020 when a pandemic came. We always thought it would be like the 90s, or the non-smoking campaign or the seatbelt campaign. It would be like that. But uh, we're in an era of instantaneous communication of instantaneous misinformation, of active disinformation. A good third of my day is spent combating misinformation online. It's amazing how deeply entrenched it is. And um, a lot of it is intentional. So how do you do this? I don't know. I mean, this uh, this is a question that's been erupting ever since the 2016 US elections when fake news became part of the zeitgeist. Right. So um, that's all wrapped into this. Uh, we need to invest more resources. Well, there, there is disinformation. There's, a, there's also for um, as a parent, the messaging around who to when to keep your kids home um, is confusing and the guidelines just changed. What are parents supposed to believe or who are they supposed to believe? Right. So I understand. and I'm sympathetic because scientists are learning in real time and scientists can't even agree fully on what's happening because we interpret the data through different lenses. And this is a novel virus, and so the directives will change as new evidence comes down. And it's critical to be aware of the new evidence and not be citing evidence from like February, as as many people are. So follow your local public health. Local public health, in many ways, is more up on the game than provincial public health, you know, strangely. So, and they have a, a deeper connection to the community and know what the individual schools are dealing with. So I would follow local public health guidance. Um, can you dispel the confusion around false positive and false negative tests? Oh, that's a huge question. So I teach this for a living and it bores the heck out of me. So let's see if I can stay awake as I go through this. So obviously you, sometimes when we test, the positive result is not high. So let me back up for a second. When we deploy testing, we do so for at least three different reasons. Number one, for diagnostic purposes. So let's say you you might have cancer, knock on wood, and you go to the hospital and we give you like a biopsy to test if you have cancer or not. It's unlikely that if you test positive, that's a fake positive. It's also unlikely if you test negative, it's a fake negative. You can be pretty sure that test is accurate. We also have screening tests like a mammogram. So if you go to get a mammogram, um, there's a high rate of false positives, very high, because that lump could be a number of things. It might not be cancer. A very low rate of false negatives. And we like that because we don't want people walking around who might have cancer and not know it. But if it's a false positive, it'll be reinvestigated at the biopsy level. So a screening test leads to a confirmation which you know, can dispel any false positives. Then there's surveillance testing. So surveillance testing, we don't really care that much about false positives and false negatives. We just want to grab a random bunch of people every now and then from the population, see if they might have the disease, and it gives us a sense of where it is in the population. So the, uh, the quality, the diagnostic qualities of each test um, matter in how they are deployed. 
So right now with COVID, the PCR test is actually a research test, but it's the only test we have. So it is the diagnostic test, very high specificity and sensitivity, meaning it is unlikely to find uh, false positives or false negatives. However, all tests, their ability to find false positives and false negatives varies with the prevalence of the disease. And this is weird for people to understand. It's a statistical thing. If I don't think that you have the disease, if there's no reason to think that you have the disease, it's unlikely you're going to test positive. But if you do test positive, it might be a false positive then. So when the disease is low prevalence, it's a higher likelihood of false positives. How do you control for that? Well, you control for it by, for those tests, the high false positive rate, by only giving them to the symptomatic people. That really reduces probability of false positives, or you test twice. So let's talk about the new rapid test that was just okayed um, the other day, the um, uh, Abbott ID Now test. It has a fairly high false positive rate when the prevalence is low, when we don't think you have a reason to have the test. So what do you do with that? You only use it in high prevalence areas like downtown Toronto or Ottawa, or you only use it with very symptomatic people, or you can use it as a screening test and then follow up with a second test if they test positive. So it matters how you deploy the test. As the new tests come in, like the new rapid antigen test, they probably don't have very high sensitivities or specificities. We can use them as screening tests or a surveillance test, but reserve the PCR test for clinical diagnosis because that capacity is being stressed right now. Hope it didn't confuse you further. <laughs> well, we only have a few. No, I, I mean, the information is power. Uh, we only have a few minutes, and I want to get another few questions. And we've been hearing a lot about the need to be outside. Uh, if you're outside, it's better for you. But I've been thinking, can being outside give people a false sense of security from, the, from contracting COVID-19, especially as the weather no. gets colder? Right. Nothing's perfect. So all these measures, mask wearing, distancing, using an air purifier, all that stuff is great. It really drastically diminishes your chances of exposure, but doesn't reduce it to zero. So if you are sitting outside next to somebody for hours on end, that's a high risk scenario if you don't know that person and they're infected. If you're walking by somebody and going for a walk or something, very low risk. So I don't think it's a false sense of security so long as you remember that duration of exposure and um, intensity of exposure also matter. Uh, it's not a panacea. It just greatly reduces probability. Could Ontario be doing a better job of contact tracing? Yes. I don't blame the contact tracers. We need more contact tracing resources. We need more powers for the contact tracers. Maybe they should be checking social media feeds if they're not already. We need more, you know, more use of the app. We need people to remember where they've been. We need maybe uh, businesses to be, take the ledger more seriously. If you go to a restaurant, signing in and, and making sure you provide real information so we can find you if you've been exposed. There are things citizens can do to make this easier. Um, we've been hearing that life is not going to get anywhere near to what it was before until we have a vaccine. In your opinion, how long do you think that would be? <laughs> okay, I, I always get in trouble for making this prediction. So we have a number of great vaccine candidates being trialed right now. I anticipate we'll have one to market by early next year, maybe as late as um, spring of next year. That probably means we'll have it in Canada by the summer, maybe deployed to healthcare workers and high-risk populations by the fall. Um, it takes a few weeks or months to get an immune response. That means maybe we'll have a sufficient people with an immune response by the end of next year. That doesn't mean we'll be normal, but it means we won't be afraid of this disease by next fall. And, and so I anticipate we may declare the pandemic, pandemic 
effectively over by the early 2022, even though there will be hot zone uh, parts around the world. So normality, like the way things were in 2019, end of 2022. That's two years. (laughs) (laughs) That's two years. A friend of mine was like, you know, one day we might look back on 2020 and be like, wow, I wish it was 2020 because it was a better scenario. Than we are now. Um, you <laughs> Things know, are getting better, though. They're getting yeah, better. Yeah. Because um, I think uh, we have about a minute left, but I just wanted to square uh, our conversation because we've been hearing this message from the government that people need to do better, individuals need to do better, and yet we are, um, certain businesses are open, schools, class sizes are bigger than uh, what public health is suggesting they be, how do we all then move forward to to help the numbers not climb in that kind of scenario? How do we do things to prevent numbers from climbing? Well, we don't have to wait for government to tell us what to do. We know what to do. Wear your mask, distance, avoid social gatherings that you don't need to go to. That's the key part, avoid social gatherings. There's no mystery here what we need to do. So obviously, if your child is going to school, that's an unavoidable scenario. But we as individuals don't have to go to that house party. We don't have to go shopping. You don't need stuff just out of boredom. It's hard for some people. I get it. But we just need most people to do this most of the time, and we'll get through this. Ray Watt, really appreciate your insights for tonight. And I'll be following you on Twitter and listening to the podcast. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much. The Agenda with Steve Pakin is brought to you by the Chartered Professional Accountants of Ontario. CPA Ontario is a regulator, an educator, a thought leader, and an advocate. We protect the public. We advance our profession. We guide our CPAs. We are CPA Ontario. And by viewers like you. Thank you.